today. We're finishing up the series we've been in called The Art of Neighboring. Um, and you know, there's some series that we do as a, as a church, like some series are more geared towards learning, where it's like, we're going we're gonna to work through a passage of scripture or something, we're going to unpack it, we're going to be like, hey, here's what this means, we're going to nuance it, and what does this look like for our lives? Um, and then there, there's other ones that are just more geared towards doing, where it's not like, we're going to learn this new thing, where it's just like, nope, if you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, this is how we live, and this is how we do it. Sorry. Uh, it, just, it comes into my head, and I must say it. Um, but like, th- and that's one of those, the series that we're in right now. It's, like, it's not super like, wow, I've never thought of that before. It's just, hey, if, we're, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is something that we need to take seriously. So this is something that we, we do. This series leans towards the doing end of things, and we're talking about loving our neighbors. That if you would call yourself a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, we are called to love our neighbors. Jesus says the most important thing is that you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything you have, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That those two things are connected. That if you are in a relationship with Jesus, he should be doing a work in your life that it just, it kind of spills out of you and you love the people around you. And so as we've been kind of going through this series, we've been um, getting kind of practical with that and saying, well, what if like when Jesus said loves your neighbor, yes, we know he means everyone and everyone is our neighbor. And yes, we need to love everyone. But what if like we take that really, really literally uh, and actually do what Jesus said and say, hey, when he said love our neighbors, that meant our actual neighbors too. So the people that live next door to you or, or across the street or down the road or um, in your neighborhood or, you know, I know we're kind of a rural community. So if you're, you're not like in like city limits, the people that live, you know, down the, the like way down the road, they're still your neighbor. Like what about those people? Um, so we, we started talking about this the first week we kick things off with the Good Samaritan, this, this famous story that Jesus tells. It's become such a famous story, actually, that the phrase, to be a Good Samaritan, has worked its way into our cultural language, that whenever someone does something good for someone else, we call them a Good Samaritan. It's almost normal for us, but the story that Jesus told was anything but normal. It, it shattered so many um, cultural barriers and, and just turned like on its head what it means to be a good neighbor, how to love people well. And we said, if we're going to love our actual neighbors, what do we apply from that story? It means we're going to have to be compassionate towards our neighbors. We're going to have to be flexible with our schedules and our time and our lives if we want to love our neighbors well. We have to be willing um, to sacrifice. And then last week, we, we discussed this idea of, okay, well, what gets in the way? Because maybe you're like, okay, Phil, I agree with you that loving our neighbors is important. You know, kind of part of what I've been saying in this series is the most practical way that we can change our, our, our communities and our world for the better, the most efficient way, the way that we can actually do something and make a difference and, and have communities where people flourish and, and people have opportunities and needs are met and we can actually heal some of the ridiculous division and vitriol that just seems to permeate our culture. I've said one of the best ways we can do that is actually to love the people around us. And so maybe you're like, I agree with that, but there's some things that get in the way. And last week we talked about one of the biggest ones. It was just time. Phil, I would love to love my neighbor. I just don't know where I'm going to find time to do it. I'm, I'm so busy already. I've got so much going on. I've, you know, I've got kids stuff and family stuff and work stuff. And like my schedule is so packed. I don't have time. And I kind of challenged us to say, well, maybe we should rethink that and say it's not that I don't have time, but I'm choosing not to make the time. Um, because we actually have more time than we've really ever had before, but we just fill it with all kinds of things. And so, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, it was this idea of like we've got to prioritize what we do with our time. That if love God and love neighbor is most impo- the most important thing, that's priority number one. It needs to be priority on our calendars and in our schedules and in our day-to-day lives. Uh, and then we said that means we're going to have to eliminate some things and maybe be willing to interrupt it, be interrupted. So that was kind of the first big obstacle today as we wrap the series up. It's the last week of the series. Um, we're going to talk about another obstacle to loving our neighbors. And that is simply the way that many times we see all or some or a few of our neighbors. 
Sometimes what, what gets in the way of us loving people well, the people that live next door to us or whatever, is just the way that we see them. It's the lens through which we look at them. Sometimes we see our neighbors through a lens of fear. We're timid, we're afraid, we, we're, we're afraid just of like people in general, we don't want to talk to them, or we, there's something about them that we actually fear. It's like, I'm, they, they make me uneasy. Maybe we look at our neighbors through a lens of, of judgment for, for whatever reason. Sometimes we just look at them through a lens of indifference. It's like, oh, my neighbor, hmm, whatever. Sometimes our neighbors just seem other to us. They're just different. They live different than I do. They look different than I do. You know, you've got those neighbors that you just see in a certain way. Like, I got that neighbor, they, they, I, their, their life is just different than mine. Like, I'm a Christian and I believe certain things and they don't. And so I don't know if I can be around them. Because some of us, man, if you, if you, this weird thing happens that the longer you're a Christian, if you're not really, really careful, the more uncomfortable you get being around people that aren't Christians. And that's like the complete opposite of the life of Jesus. He's hanging out with everyone. And so sometimes we're like, oh, they believe differently, they look differently, they live differently, they have different values than I do. I, 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 so I see them through that lens. And, and there's certain things, we, 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 we pass judgments, we see our neighbors in a certain way. Maybe there's, you got that house in your neighborhood that's always got like a ton of cars there. There's people coming and going like all, all day long or all hours of the night. And because of that, you see that neighbor a certain way and you begin to tell yourself a story about them. Maybe you got a neighbor that's like, oh man, they've got teenagers living in that house, okay? And their friends are always there, and they're loud all the time, and I'm just trying to sleep. And because of that, you see them a certain way. Or you got the old man that lives down the road, that he never smiles. He lives by himself, and he always just seems angry, and you're like, that guy hates me, okay? Like, he's just mad all the time, and so because of that, you see him a certain way. There's neighbors that maybe you look at, and because of what their house looks like, or what they drive, or whatever, it's like, I feel superior to them. I feel inferior to them. There's neighbors that every single election cycle, they put certain signs in their yard, and because of the signs that they put in their yard, you see them differently. And you tell yourself a story about that person and what they're like because of a sign they put in their yard. We have these narratives that we tell ourselves about our neighbors, and the way that we see them so often determines whether or not will love them. This is one of the reasons I think why it's, it's so much easier and more convenient to love people that are further away. Why it's like, I'll go on a week-long mission trip and love people in another country. I'll, I'll spend a Saturday to go like serve the homeless. But see, when I'm done with that, I get to go home and those people stay there. When I love my neighbors, they're always there. Every day I get home and there they are. And they're in their yards and they're waving and it's awkward. And so it's just easier maybe not to love those who are close by. But if we're going to be serious about loving our neighbors, for many of us it's going to have to involve us changing the way that we see our neighbors, or seeing some of our neighbors at least. And I want to suggest today um, that one of the best ways to change how we see people is actually to throw a party. I know it sounds a little strange. Hear me out on this, okay? Throw a party, because a party has, has the potential to change the way we see each other. A party has the potential to, to like, when you're, you're in that setting, your, your guard comes down a little bit, the walls come down a little bit, and you see, oh, you're like a normal person. And people see me, and they go, well, oh, you're like a normal person too, or at least as normal as we can all be, right? There's something that just happens in, in an environment that's a little bit more laid back. I think a party has the potential to change how we see each other. Now, when I say party, I have a specific definition in mind, so we're going to go over that real quick. Uh, several years ago, there was um, a guy by the name of Reggie Joyner. He's the president of uh, the founder of Orange, which is a strategy and curriculum for family ministry used by churches all over the country, all over the world. It's what we actually we use here at Hope Community. And he wrote this little book called, little e-book called Sometimes It Takes a Party. 
Uh, And in that book, he defined party this way. He said that a party is any effort to celebrate, serve, or enjoy each other in a way that adds value to life. So a party is any effort, all right? So that can be big or small. It it, it can be like long. It can be like an all day long. We're having an open house kind of thing. It can be short. It can be like an hour or two. Uh, It can be elaborate and well-planned. It can just be last minute like, hey, we're having some people over. You want to stop by? It's any effort to celebrate so sometimes a, a party is about celebrating, it's about honoring, it's about paying tribute. And so you think of things like holidays. That's what a holiday party is, right? We're, we're, we're remembering, we're celebrating something. Or birthday parties, graduation parties, we're, we're celebrating. A party can be an effort to serve people. Sometimes we have a party to like raise funds or raise awareness for something. Uh, sometimes we have a party, it's like, hey, putting a roof on the house, everyone. Come help. I'll throw some burgers on the grill. And that's a party. Some of you don't think that's a party, but that's a party. Or it's, you're moving. Hey, get some people together. Hey, we're, we're moving out. We're moving in. I'll buy pizza. That's a party. It, it can also be an effort to just enjoy. Sometimes it's just no strings attached. Like there, there's no agenda. Hey, we're having a fire Friday night. Stop by, grab something to eat. Why? Just for fun. It's any effort to celebrate, serve, or enjoy each other. Here's, here's the, the big thing with a party. A party takes at least two people, okay? You can't have a party by yourself. And I know some of you are really, really bummed about that, okay? You're like, dang it. I was hoping, but it takes at least two people. It can be more than two people, but it takes at least two people uh, in a way that adds value to life. There's a net positive that comes out of that. That, 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 that like somebody's built up, we, we laugh, we enjoy life, we, we discover something, like we, we leave that, that atmosphere, that environment and say, you know what, my life is better because that just happened. Like my time, like that was a, a good use of time. It's any effort to celebrate, serve, enjoy each other in a way that adds value to life. And I would argue that putting ourselves uh, in environments and in situations like that where, where we can do those things has the potential to change the way that we see people it has the potential for, to change the way that people maybe see us. But more than that, when those of us that are Christians and followers of Jesus do this, I think it has the potential to change the way that people see God through us. It's got the potential to change the way that people see God. And maybe, maybe this is why Jesus loved parties so much. You ever stop and think about that? Like how often you find, like you read through the gospels, like Jesus is like always at parties. Like he's always in groups of people and they're eating together and they're celebrating, they're doing these things. It's like, wow, Jesus likes to go to parties. Who's ever seen the movie Talladega Nights? A couple of you, okay. There's a particular scene in Talladega Nights where John C. Riley's character is like, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal but I like to party. And it's like, well, maybe there's actually a little bit of truth to that, like Jesus enjoys being in these situations. I mean, think about this. Jesus, like I said, he went to parties. He's always in crowds of people. He's at dinners. He's doing these things. But he also told stories about parties. He used them as illustrations to prove a point. He he, um, compares God's kingdom to to a banquet, to a party, to a celebration. And so in our time, the rest of the time together this morning, I just want to run through some of these kind of examples or encounters that Jesus has to highlight the potential that putting ourselves in these kind of environments, the potential that that has in our lives and how God can use that. And just, again, this is gonna be quick overview stuff. This is like, this is, we're not gonna like go in depth into any of this. This is like, hey, big picture. I think we can apply these things. Um, if you're more like, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna I like teaching, I wanna learn something, come back next week, we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. But for today, let's look at the, the potential of a party. First one I wanna look at is John chapter two, um, starting in, in verse one. This is Jesus' first miracle. We read that on the third day, a wedding took place. 
in Cana of Galilee. Now, a wedding at this time was very different than a wedding for us. So, see, a wedding for us, some of you hear wedding, you're like, that don't sound like a party, okay? Like, maybe this is just me. It's like, I'm happy for you, and I love that you're getting married, and I'm excited for your life together, but, oh, I got to go to a wedding. I got to get dressed up and do the whole thing. It's like, ma, right? That wasn't weddings in first century Jewish culture. A wedding for them was a week-long celebration. Everybody took off work, all your friends, all your family, the entire village, and you spent a week eating, drinking, and being merry and celebrating the people who got married. Like, it was, it was just a time of celebration. And we find that this time of celebration, this party, Jesus' mother is there, and so is Jesus. They're invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any more wine. The wine running out would have been a major point of embarrassment for people in this, this context. It would have been like shame. It would, it would cast shame upon both, both families, upon the couple. Um, and it would, it would have been a party stopper. And so Jesus turns the water into wine. He does this miracle, not just wine, but like the best wine. The people at the party are like, you, you kidding me? This is like the good stuff. Um, and this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. Now, there's a lot that you learn from that. And, and a couple months ago, we actually walked through this passage. And there's, it's all about, you know, grace and this new covenant and the new thing that Jesus is doing. But don't lose sight of what's right there in front of us. That the first j- miracle that Jesus does, the first miracle that's recorded, Jesus shows up where? Not at the temple. Not in, the, like, the religious setting. Not in uh, a place where, you know, all the powerful people are. But he shows up at a party, at a celebration with regular people doing what regular people do, celebrating this milestone in someone's life. And when something happens that threatens that, that would cause shame to this family, he steps in and says, I got this. I think right from the, the get-go, right from the kind of this beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's this statement that sometimes this kind of environment, sometimes it takes a party to demonstrate that God is for people. God is for people, not just the religious people, not just powerful people, not just important people, but he's just for regular people, normal people like me and you. He cares about us. Or how about there's a famous story that Jesus tells, one of his most probably famous parables of of what's called the prodigal son. There's a dad that's got two sons. There's an older son who's like the responsible one, and there's the younger son who's kind of like the rebel child. And the younger son goes to his dad and basically says, I wish you were dead, give me my money. Essentially, that's what he tells him. He wants his inheritance, and in that culture, a son would only get that, that inheritance after the father died. And so he says, listen, Dad, basically to me, the only, the only value you have to me is the fact that I'm going to get your stuff someday, so can I just have it now? And the father gives him his stuff. And the son goes off to this faraway country, and Scripture says that he blows it all, all the money on wild living. You can fill in the blank for whatever that meant. And then there's a famine in the land, and so this son now is out of money, he's starving, he's hungry, and so he hires himself out to a pig farmer to feed the pigs, which was like, uh, for, for that cultural context, would have been disgraceful and disgusting for him. And he comes to his senses, and he's like, let me just go back home. I don't expect to be accepted back as a son, but maybe my dad will hire me so I can at least have a job and have food in my stomach. And so he makes his way back home. We find this in Luke's gospel, and here's what happens. He got up, the son got up, and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Like that, those, are, those are symbolic things. The ring on his finger, the sandals, the robe. It's like, this is, you are welcome back into the family. Like, you are my son again. But the father doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, you're part of the family and you're forgiven. The story goes on. The father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. 
let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. You're back, let's throw a party. There's food, there's all kinds of things going on. Actually, the the story continues on. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. We read a little bit more of the account. We kind of learned the older son is very stuck up and kind of hypocritical and doesn't like the fact that his brother's being welcomed back in. But whenever he comes near the house, he hears the sound of music and dancing. So he's out in the field. He gets closer to the house. He's like, what is going on? As the servants, what is going on? Like, there's music. There's dancing. Like, what? They killed the fattened calf. In other words, like, the best food possible. Like, this is nuts. What happened? All of this for my little brother who, who doesn't deserve anything? It's this beautiful story of a loving father throwing a party for a rebellious son. It's a story of, of, of grace and love and forgiveness and like a welcome back with open arms. And in the story, like you and I, it's like, hey, we're, sometimes we're the prodigal. We're the ones that said, you know, basically forget you, God. I don't want anything to do with you. And we make our way back. A lot of times in the story, and I know this is kind of harsh and it doesn't feel so good, but a lot of times we're the older son. We're the hypocritical kind of like religious, like, ah, well, I'm good. But don't miss that, that the father in the story is God. God takes this posture of like, I'm waiting for you to come back to me. And when you do, it's open arms, and I love you, and I forgive you. Let's have a party, because sometimes it takes a party to confirm that we can always be forgiven. Like, like there's something, there's more than just words and saying, I forgive you, but there's something about, like, that celebration that says, no, like, this is true. You can come back to me, and there's going to be a party, and there's going to be a celebration, and it's going to be like nothing ever happened. All that that happened in the past, it's in the past. We are going to celebrate. This is a brand new thing moving forward. Uh, in the book, Reggie says, nothing can authenticate. Nothing can authenticate forgiveness. Like celebrating with someone a new direction in life. No- nothing says, yes, you're really forgiven, and yes, this is a brand new start, than celebrating with them and saying, I'm in your corner, let's do this. The party confirms that we can always be forgiven. There's the many, many, many times that um, we find Jesus at parties with all the wrong people. Like, he is constantly, like, we find him eating dinner and at people's house that, like, the religious leaders around him are like, you have got to be kidding me. You cannot hang out with these people. Uh, there's one time in the Gospel of Luke where we find this happening. We read this in Luke 5, that after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And so Levi has another name. His other name that he goes by is Matthew. One of the first followers of Jesus brings us one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. But Matthew, or Levi, he's a tax collector. And the tax collectors are the most hated class of citizens in Jesus' day. Uh, they, they, were, they were thieves. They were traitors. They were viewed as robbers. Uh, they were, in Jesus' culture, they were Jewish people who basically turned their back on their Jewish brothers and sisters to work for the Roman Empire to collect taxes and, and, and rip people off. Nobody liked the tax collectors. And so it, it, they're, they're on the outside of the cultural context and society, but they're also on the outside of the religious context. And were, you know, were you proper and could you go before God? And so nobody likes the tax collectors. Jesus walks right up to one and says, hey, let's go. Come follow me. And that's not even really the most shocking part. What's more shocking is what happens next. After that, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. I mean, think about it. I'd be pretty, like, Jesus, Levi's excited. He's like, what? I get to follow you? Jesus, let's go to my house. We've got to have a party. And at his house, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
Uh, we, we read kind of other accounts of this and fill in the blanks of like the others here are more tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, like the worst of the worst because Levi is a tax collector. So if he's going to have a party at his house, who is he going to invite? Nobody likes him. The only people that are coming to his house are all the other people that nobody likes. It's all the people that society said, no, you're not good for our society. You don't fit in the religious system. Nobody likes you. Nobody cares. And there's Jesus in the midst of this crowd eating with them. To share a meal with someone was more than just, I'm hungry. You want to grab a bite to eat. To share a meal with someone, even some in our context today, there's something significant about sitting down and eating with someone. But at this time was even more so. It was like, it was communicating that, hey, we, we're together. You, you're accepted. I am associating myself with you, and you're associating yourself with me in like a public manner. There's Jesus sitting in the midst of all these people that he's not, as a, as a religious leader, should be, he's not supposed to be around, the bad people. And Jesus is right in the middle of them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so the religious leaders, they, they saw that, and they complained to his disciples, and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing? You're not supposed to be with these people. And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. These are my people. This is who I came for. This is who I care about. Th- th- this is why I am here. And this isn't the only time that this happens. This actually happens on multiple occasions throughout Jesus' ministry where he's criticized for who he hangs out with. Another time, the tax collector, there's a guy named Zacchaeus, and he's short, so he's up in a tree. He's a chief tax collector, and Jesus is like, come on down. I'm coming to your house. And everyone's like, no. There's a time when he goes to a party at a Pharisee's house, a religious leader's house, because Jesus doesn't discriminate. He's like, sure, I'll come to the religious people's party too. But while he's at that party, this sinful woman comes up and starts like wetting Jesus' feet with, with her tears and wiping them with her hair and anointing him with oil. It's just like this, this show of extreme respect. And the, the, the Pharisee who's there is like, don't you know who this woman is? She has a past. And Jesus says, don't, don't you see her? She's done a beautiful thing. I'm not afraid to be seen with her and others like her. It actually, it's kind of funny. It gets to the point where, where Jesus does this so often that they start, there starts to be these accusations against him that he's like, uh, he's just a drunkard or a glutton or whatever. Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking and look what they say. Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. To which I think Jesus would say, you bet I am. I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners because that's why I'm here. See, the, who Jesus interacted with in the Gospels and the way in which he interacted with them proclaims this beautiful truth that sometimes it takes a party to prove that people matter more than our opinions and people matter more than our viewpoints and people matter more than even our reputations. People matter more than just the things that we believe. Now, your viewpoint and your opinion and our beliefs, like, those things are important. But, but any time that your view gets in the way of loving a you, we're wrong. It's actually possible, I know this is crazy, and this is something I think the church needs to step up in and add to the conversations in culture and in the world. It is possible to hold to your convictions and hold to your views and hold to your beliefs and still love and treat people with dignity and honor and respect. I mean, even what Jesus said, that, that when he's at Levi or Matthew's house and he's hanging out, he's like, Listen, I've not come for the healthy, but the sick. I've, I've, I, I've not come for the righteous, but I've come for, for sinners. I'm right where I belong. And you're like, yes, it's beautiful. But imagine you're sitting at that party with Jesus, and you're like, wait a minute. 
did you just call me sick and a sinner? And it's like, well, yes, I did. And you're like, somehow you love me in such a way that that doesn't bother me. It's possible to hold on to the things that we believe and, and the way that we see the world and come and, and, and encounter and do life with people that think differently than we do and go, you know what? You are still loved. Sometimes it takes a party to prove that people matter in that way. And, and the, final, the final kind of example is there's a time when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he tells a story comparing the kingdom to a banquet, to a big feast. And there's a bunch of people who are invited to this banquet. He's like, I'm sending this invitation out. And, and a lot of them don't come. They start making excuses as to, to why they can't be there. We pick this up in Matthew 22. Uh, the, the, like the master in the story, the master of the feast or the banquet says to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. The party is ready. It is party time. But those I invited, they didn't deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Luke shares a, a similar account, maybe his version of the same account, Luke 14. The servant came back and reported these things to his master, that all these people were like, no, sorry, I can't make it, I got this going on, I got this going on, can't come to the party, can't come to the party. And so the master, in anger, because he's like, I've done all of this for you. I've made this party and you're invited. So the master in anger tells the servant, okay, well, go quickly to the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. You go invite all of the people that nobody invites to anything and say they're invited to my party. That these preparations, that this is extravagance is for them. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. And so the master told the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. Go out and invite people. People reject the invitation, but go out there and invite them anyway. The good, the bad, the rich, and the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, they are all my welcomed guests. As Jesus told this, this story, this parable, to, to, to illustrate, okay, what, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like he's saying sometimes it takes a party to remind us that everyone is invited. Everyone, every single person that you ever meet, every single person on the face of the planet is invited to God's party. Now, not everyone's going to go. I mean, that, that, that's kind of seen in like the, the parable as well. Some people are like, no, nope, don't want to. I don't want to go to your party. I got other stuff going on. But don't ever let that part make us forget that everyone's invited. Everyone you ever see in your life is someone who's invited to God's party, that he's throwing an eternal party, that, that, that heaven, that the, the new age, the life to come, the kingdom of God, like it is depicted as a celebration, as a wedding feast of a thing that is overflowing with life and joy and goodness. And the good news is that because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, everyone is invited. Everyone's invited. And that idea, that can, and that should change the way that we see the world around us. That should change the way that we see our neighbors. I mean, what if we started actually living our lives in, in every interaction we have, every person that we see, every person that we talk to, we start living in such a way with this, this realization in the front, the front of my mind says, you're, you're a person who's invited to God's party. Like, you're not just made in the image of God, although they are, but sometimes that concept, it's kind of like abstract for us. Or you're not just loved by God, although you are, even though that idea can be kind of abstract for us, but, but like, you're invited to the party that God is throwing. He wants you there. That there is an eternal party, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited, you're going to be there, but every other person that you see is invited as well, and God wants them there. You're invited, everyone in your family, 
every one of your friends, all the people that you work with, and yes, your neighbors who live right next door are invited to the party, and they need to know that. They need to know that they're invited to the party, and we need to know, and we need to see people in such a way that says, every time I see my neighbor out in their yard, and that person, that I, they make me uneasy, and that person, uh, the, 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 the loud teenagers, and the person down the road that's grouchy, and the people that vote differently, that every time I see them, I recognize, and I go, there's someone that is invited to the party. I need to see them that way, and they need to know that that's true, and there's something about a party, one of the best ways we can communicate that is to have a party. Because sometimes it takes a party to demonstrate that we're for you, and so is God. So sometimes it takes coming into contact with people and, and like entering into life in a way that, remember that definition of a party at the beginning, it's any, any effort to, to celebrate, serve, or enjoy each other in a way that adds value in life. Sometimes it takes being in that environment with someone to really demonstrate that we are for you those of us that are Christians, we are for you, and so through that, we want you to know that God is for you as well, because if we don't do that, sometimes it's really easy for people who are outside of the church to think that those of us who are Christians, we're for other Christians, and God is for the Christians, but everyone who doesn't look, think, or believe like us, we're not for them, but that's just not true. So we put ourselves in these positions, man, we demonstrate that we are for you and that so is God. Sometimes it takes a party to confirm, again, that you can always be forgiven, because it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to show it and to demonstrate it with just kind of extravagance, with, with fun, with celebration, with life. Sometimes it takes a party to prove that people matter more than our opinions, our viewpoints, and our reputations. Again, this is something that is so desperately needed in our world. And, and I gotta be honest, man, if, like, if the church can't do this, is there any hope that anyone else in the world can? Like if we... and. Let me just, let's just get real for a minute. I look around at a lot of churches and a lot of Christians, and it seems like we're awful at this. Like, we're worse at this than, than pretty much everybody else. Say, so, you know, if you don't think exactly like we do, you are a threat and you must be eliminated. But in this cultural climate with all the tension and all the, like, we're going to take sides and you're going to be canceled if you don't think exactly like me and you've got to have these beliefs and you're, you're, you're a danger, you're a threat. Like, what if we as followers of Jesus said, you know what, we will have our disagreements and, and we, will, we will, you know, not see eye to eye. We will believe different and we will live different and we will have our convictions and we will stick to those, but they will never get in the way of us treating people with dignity and honor and love and respect. We will invite people to the party who in other, we would never like do any kind of life with. That was one of the things that made the first century church so insanely different, that there were people who, who were in these gatherings that outside of the church, their paths never would have crossed. They should have been enemies. They were like cultural, like at opposite ends of the spectrum. And we could put ourselves in a similar position that says, you know what, again, you are loved. You are more than your view. You are more than what you think, even when we, when we disagree. Sometimes it takes a party to prove that people matter more than our opinions, our views, our reputations. And finally, sometimes it just takes a party to remind us that everyone is invited to God's party. To have that reminder in front of us all the time that the reason that we are here as followers of Jesus, it's to worship God, it's to know him, but it's also to proclaim his goodness to other people. And we need that reminder that everyone's invited and we are part of that message going out. It's a little bit of a strange conviction, I know, but I think because of Jesus, because of the way he lives and what he shows, I think those of us that are his followers should just be known as party people. 
We should be known as people that we just throw the best parties. Now, listen, I'm not talking about you going home like, all right, pastor said we're throwing a party. We're going to have a raging kegger in the backyard, all right? I, I did not say that, okay? But I'm just saying we're like the kind of people that's like that people recognize life just flows out of them. They enjoy life. They celebrate life, and it's infectious, like when I'm around them, like life gets better and I, there's something that comes alive. I mean, we should be known for being those kind of people. The goal of this series, I, again, it's not been to like teach you something that you're like, wow, I've never thought of that. But it's been to give us some like some handles to say, if we're going to love our neighbors, how do we do that? Let's give us some practical handles for doing that. And so, listen, one, one of those handles was this, right? If you were here the first week or even last week, you got one of these magnets. These are designed to get to know your neighbors. You got a little yellow house in the middle. It's like that's your house and all the white boxes around you, those are your closest neighbors. We want you to take this magnet. We want you to get to know your neighbors, their names, like their actual names. Put this on your fridge so you can know them by name, refer to them by name, pray for them by name. So you can actually get to know them because, listen, it's really hard to love someone if you don't even know their name. So get to know your neighbor's names. If you didn't get one of those already, make sure you grab one on your way out today. Uh, really, the, like the, the point of those magnets is actually to move us along this path of being a stranger with our neighbors to at least an acquaintance. To at least be someone that like, hey, I, we could have small talk. I know your name. That's what those magnets are to do. It's to move us in that direction, but we don't want to stop there. We want to move from acquaintance to relationship. Where I don't just know your name, but I know your story. I know you. And because I know your story and because I know you, I now see you differently. And again, I would just argue and say that one of the best ways to do that is to have a party. Is to put yourself in an environment. What, what, what's a, what, that, that makes that happen? What is a party? Again, back at the beginning, a party, it's any effort to celebrate, to serve, to enjoy each other in a way that adds value to life. Do that with some of your neighbors. Not metaphorically, like, like seriously, that's, this, that's the homework for this, this, this message, all right? I'm, I am instructing you. I mean, I don't know if you listen to me or not, but <laughs> go have a party. Throw a party for your neighbors. Sometime between now and the end of summer, we're about a third of the way through summer, so about two-thirds of the summer left, I want you to have a party for your neighbor or your neighbors. It can be big or small. For some of you, it, it can be huge. You're like, yeah, let's do it up big. I'm inviting the whole block. Everyone's coming. For the others of you, it might be small. It might just be like, hey, you know, we're having a fire one night and a couple of friends are coming over, a couple of neighbors inviting them, right? It can be part of something that you're already doing or something that you're choosing to do just for this. It be something that's already going on, like an easy invite. It's like, hey, like in two weeks, it's 4th of July weekend. Or at the end of summer, you got Labor Day weekend. Like, you know, we were going to have some people over anyway. I was going to cook something on the grill. We're going to have a little fire. Why don't you just invite one or two of your neighbors or all of them, whatever. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It's like, hey, we're having some people over. Would you, would you or your family, you guys want to come? Or it could just be, hey, you know, some of you I know, it's like you just do fires, right? You have a fire a couple times a month or whatever. Be like, hey, you know, we, we're having a fire night. Going to cook some hot dogs or whatever. You, you guys want to come up? It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be elaborate. But take that step of actually going from stranger to acquaintance to relationship. You know, I, I talked the first week about kind of the blanketing effect that we could have if we, if we did this. I said, as, as a church, you know, it's kind of crazy when you look at like a map and if you would pinpoint, because we know where all of you live. <laughs> if you would pinpoint, not, I'm just kidding. Well, some of you, because you gave us your address, okay? We're not stalking you. You you willingly gave us that information. But if you would pinpoint where we live, like every single one of the, like the allotments or subdivisions in Minerva, there's a family or, or a person or a couple or whatever that lives in one of those that go to Hope Community. 
And it's not just in Minerva. You go out of Minerva, any direction, north, south, east, or west, the kind of the outskirts and the, the rural areas, there's someone there who's a part of Hope Community. You even get past our, uh, the community of Minerva. We have families who are part of our church that are from the Carrollton area, from the Malvern area, from the Magnolia area, from the Paris, Louisville, Alliance. It's like, th- it's crazy how wide of, of a reach that we have and how much of an impact we could have. If we would say, you know what? We are going to be the church in those communities. Or it's not just about, hey, come to my church, come to my church, come to my church, and, and I want you to get here and get you in the room. Listen, we want you to invite people, absolutely. We, we, we love what happens on Sunday morning, absolutely. We're not saying let's get rid of that. We should continue doing that because people come here and they hear the message of hope and they discover who Jesus is and God does something when we're gathered together. But what I'm saying is that's not the only place that happens. Because what if, if we showed up where we live there is an opportunity for people to come in and have an encounter with Jesus and hear his gospel, not just on Sunday, but seven days a week because you live in the neighborhood. Imagine if we all did this, if we all made the effort to take these small steps, because these are, I mean, I know it kind of seems scary, but they're kind of small. That's not the, a huge step to get to know the names of your neighbors. It's not a huge step to have a little, a little gathering, say, hey, you just want to come over and, 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 you know, have a fire or, you know, want to cook something or hang out with the family, whatever. If we all just took these small steps, imagine little gatherings popping up in neighborhoods all across our community where people are meeting in backyards, where they're meeting on front porches, where they're meeting around dining room tables. And imagine relationships beginning to develop with our neighbors to where your, your neighbors, they actually know and believe and experience that, you know what, this, you know, th- these people who live next door, like they know me and they love me. Like, I I am known and loved by my neighbors. Imagine your neighbor feeling known and loved by you, and then God using that to communicate to them that they're known and loved by him as well. As simple as this is, it has the potential to change our community. It has the potential to really to change the world. If we love God, we love our neighbors. And so, God, I pray that you would make us the kind of people that would would do that, that that would take this seriously, that, that just as simple as it seems... Lord, that we would just live it out. Be people that are so completely just changed and impacted by your love for us that that flows out into every area of life. That it would be evident that our relationship with you would be evident with the, through the way that we love the people around us. God, give us the courage and the, the, the wisdom, the strength, the boldness um, to take those steps because it can be scary. God, help us to remember that that you've not given us a a spirit of fear, but one of boldness. God, may you use these small steps that we take to reveal yourself to more and more people. Would you change our lives, change our hearts, change the lives of the people around us? We pray this in Jesus' name.